Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, and thank you for joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we are so glad that all of you decided again to tune in today. Uh, hopefully, after after this service is over here, after you're done watching today, you can you can go get some good food, some food that tastes better than that gross Thanksgiving meal. Yep. I said it, y'all. I, I said it. Remember, the name of this series is Controversial Jesus, and I'm just really this morning trying to lean into the controversial part. We got, we got this is the last week, so I, I got to do it. And I'm again, I'm going to say it again. The Thanksgiving meal is just not very good. And and if you're like dying right now that I'm saying this out loud, remind yourself there's a reason that you only eat it once a year, and there's a reason that when you go to a restaurant, you never see Thanksgiving meal on the like on the menu. You don't see cranberry sauce or stuffing or turkey. Uh, you see cheeseburgers and steak and good salads, things like that, that, that people actually want to eat. So anyway, I, I said it. Hopefully you all didn't turn this off now. Seriously, though, we are so glad <laughs> that you are here today. Obviously, there were plenty of low-hanging excuses to not tune in on a weekend like this one. Uh, so again, it doesn't mean a lot that you are here. Today, as we just alluded to, we wrap up a series that we have been in now for the last three months. Uh, today is, in fact, part 12 of 12, this series titled Controversial Jesus, a series that has included topics such as the sexual revolution, the transgender community, same-sex attraction, abortion, marriage, divorce, mammon, politics politics, and, and a handful of others. Uh, this has been our most listened to series by a wide margin. And so if you would like to go back uh, and listen to any of those messages, you could always conveniently do so at grumlaw.com slash messages, uh, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you grab your podcast. Now, the title of today's message, uh, as we tie a bow on this series, is Jesus and Controversial Grace. Uh, if you brought your Bibles with you here today, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have those up for grabs at either one of our physical locations every single week. Uh, if you're watching from home and you don't have a Bible, uh, you can always download the Version Bible app. That's totally free and you will have uh, the Bible wherever you have your smartphone. So pretty convenient in that way. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, go ahead and hop on over to Luke chapter 7. That's one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. Today we're going to be taking a look at what is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Uh, and I'm confident that if it is not one of your favorite stories in all of Scripture, uh, it will be by the end of this message. Uh, uh, this is, in a nutshell, this story that we find in Luke 7, a story of one guy throwing a party and then another guy throwing a fit. Now, it's really, really important, and most of you have probably caught on to this by this point in the series. Uh, it's important to note that, that a lot of what Jesus taught to his original first century audience that would have been deemed controversial back then is no longer controversial today. And a lot of what we think of as controversial today was not controversial at all some 2,000 years ago. For instance, uh, Jesus' sexual ethic and, and his message of exclusivity were not controversial to his original audience. Our society, by the way, finds that stuff to be extremely controversial. What was particularly controversial during Jesus' earthly ministry weren't the behaviors he condemned, but rather, and this brings us to the topic of today, but rather the people he embraced. And you're going to clearly see this dynamic play out uh, in this message, which again, we find in Luke chapter 7, again, one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus we pick up in verse 36. It says there that one of the Pharisees, this was a uh, very religious individual, asked Jesus to have dinner with him. 
So, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. Now, traditionally, uh, if you grew up going to church, if you're familiar at all with the scriptures, you understand that the Pharisees, the religious elite, uh, and Jesus didn't really get along. So it's a worthwhile question to, to wonder, okay, why is a Pharisee then asking Jesus to come over for dinner? See, the Pharisees figured out at a certain point uh, what everyone else had figured out and was taking note of, that, that Jesus was like really, really popular. At this point in his earthly ministry, everywhere that Jesus would go, there would be these massive crowds that would follow. Jesus was, to use a more modern term, Jesus was famous. And these individuals, these Pharisees, they were all about the praise and adoration from other people, the praise and adoration from men. So the intent here in having Jesus over for dinner wasn't to worship Jesus. It wasn't even to learn from Jesus, but rather to use Jesus. Use Jesus to increase my own image, to increase my own status, to increase my own popularity. It was like the first century version of, of snapping a picture with a celebrity and then posting that picture to all of your social media accounts as if like you know that person at all. So, so, so Pharisees, to take it even a step further, they would literally leave the doors to their homes open to, to these private parties so that anyone who is walking by could clearly look into their home and be like, oh, dang, do, do you see who Jerry has hanging out at his place today? J Jesus is in there. They were hoping that people would walk by and, and take notice of this. Now, it's also worth noting here that it says here that Jesus was sitting down to eat, uh, but he's not sitting down in the way that we think around like a dining table with chairs and stuff. They, they would rather actually kind of be like reclining around a table, uh, be just a couple feet tall. Uh, the men would be sitting kind of like, I, I could lay down on the floor and do this, but I think you'll get the image, uh, kind of leaning on their right elbows with their feet extended away from the table. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is that that posture is going to be important uh, the further that we get into this story. So less sitting, more lounging around a table. Next verse. It says, when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. Now, uh, when the text here says immoral woman from that city, uh, what it means is that she was a woman of the night. Y you catching on with what I'm talking about here? Uh, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you have a fun conversation coming your way on the way home from, from church today, okay? And, and the perfume that is being noted here uh, is, is very, very expensive. In fact, uh, people smarter than me, they've done the conversion rate, they've adjusted for inflation. We're talking roughly $70,000 worth of perfume that she brings into this party. And not only is this perfume extremely expensive, and this has become more important the deeper that we get into the story, it's also a tool that is used for her trade. See, back at this point in history, um, prostitutes would wear around their necks these little jars of perfume like this one that would not only communicate visually to people that you were available for purchase, but, but the perfume that the scent would also alert men via smell before they could even visually see you that, hey, like you smell it, that there is a woman near, there's a woman in the area who is offering herself in, in that way. Catch with what I'm talking about? Next verse. Then she, being the prostitute, knelt uh, behind him, Jesus, at his feet, weeping. Her, her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off, her tears, with her hair. That Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. Now, there is so much more here uh, than our modern eyes and ears will typically detect and pick up. Uh, in this first century Middle Eastern culture, uh, an adult woman, and this cannot be overstated, an adult woman never, never let her hair down in the presence of a man who was not her husband. 
In fact, to do so, as I was researching for this, I found this interesting, to do so was actually legal grounds for divorce in this culture. And you all actually know that this hasn't completely gone away here in the 21st century. Uh, look right now at places in the Middle East, places like uh, present-day Saudi Arabia, uh, and head coverings are still very prevalent. It's the exact same principle. So, so you tracking with me here? This woman starts doing with Jesus what she had only previously done with paying customers. Now, now to help us kind of like get, get our head around like, like how scandalous this would have been, uh, imagine me, your pastor, uh, that, that I'm at a, at a gathering with other pastors. In fact, I just got back from one actually down in, in Dallas. And, and let's say I'm at dinner with a bunch of other pastors in the middle of the meal, uh, a, a woman who, who is very clearly a lady of the night by, by modern terms, she comes rolling in and she begins to do things to me that she has only previously done with, with customers. You think a couple people at that table might be a little bit suspicious of, of my actions away from the church, away from my family, away from pastor gatherings like that? It's the same scenario. They're kind of sitting there on pins and needles going, how does Jesus know this woman? And, and what is about to happen next? When the Pharisee who had invited him, Jesus saw this, he said to himself, and that's really important to note, he said to himself, he's thinking this, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She is a sinner. Now, (laughs) there's some serious irony going on here. Uh, Simon, the, the Pharisee is thinking, and again, he's not saying it out loud. This is an internal thought. He's going, okay, if this guy, Jesus, who is supposedly a prophet, knew who this woman was, there is no way that he would be allowing to happen what, what is happening right now. And, and in the very next verses, you're going to see here in a second, Jesus, <laughs> he literally responds to Simon's internal thoughts. We might call that appropriately prophetic. See, if you're able to read people's minds and respond to those thoughts, most people, I think, would appropriately label you a, a prophet. Now, now, second thing I want us to take note of here uh, is back at this point in history, there were literally hundreds, I mean a lot, hundreds of, of cleanliness laws. In short, what, what, what these were uh, set up to do is if you wanted to be in good standing at the temple, which is where you would encounter the presence of God, it was like the holiest place back at this point in history. If you wanted to be in good standing at the temple, then you had to keep yourself ceremonially clean. It was all these different laws, like not coming into contact with blood, avoiding sick people, avoiding lepers, avoiding people who had, who had engaged in sexually immoral things. And, and if you wanted to remain clean, you had to avoid, avoid said people by at least 50 paces. Like, seriously, it's like the whole social distancing before social distancing. 50 paces. This is all true. So, so, so track with me here. Under normal circumstances, if an unclean thing comes into contact with the clean thing, then the clean thing becomes unclean. Track with me? But, but Jesus comes along and he flips the script on all of this. And, and some of you can, can see where I'm going with this. Jesus is not normal circumstances. Jesus is a stain remover. With Jesus, everything gets flipped on its head. And rather than the clean thing becoming unclean by the unclean thing, Jesus makes that which was unclean clean because it came in contact with the only one who was actually clean. 
Jesus declares to all of humanity, come to me, bring to me that which is red as crimson and I will make it as white as snow. So so, so the woman is worshiping Jesus and Simon is whining about Jesus. And this is actually the dynamic that you see play out all throughout the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. See, some people, they meet Jesus and they wanna go tell it on the mountain. I mean, they, they tell it and proclaim it to literally anyone who will listen. Other people meet Jesus and they want to go and tattle on Jesus to the religious leaders. You got your worshipers and you got your whiners. Every single week when I hop on, on this stage or the stage in Grand Blank, uh, y'all are, are, are obviously watching me. Like I recognize that, right? Like all these eyeballs just kind of staring right into your soul. But, but maybe you don't realize this. I am also watching all of you. And in those moments, I'm taking note of your body language, how, how you're responding, and, and I'm trying to cater my words and my tone accordingly. It doesn't always go exactly to script, meaning like I kind of have to adjust on the fly based on how you are receiving the words. And every single week when I talk about Jesus, and we talk about Jesus every single week, you can just tell from some people that they are like, they are all in. They could not be more excited about Jesus. If I'm just being honest, you're my favorite people. You're the people that clap. You're the people that say amen. You're the people that make this feel less like I'm talking to you and more like a conversation. I get excited to preach to you. And, and others of you, well, um, you, you look like my son Malachi when, when I tell him that he cannot have Halloween candy before dinner, Right? Like, like we still got a lot of Halloween candy left. And I don't know why he asks this question all the time. It's the same answer every time. And he just stares at me. <laughs> he has this new look where he just looks at me like this from across the room. Like he's just scowling and mad at me. Like this, this feeling of, yeah, I might still be a part of the Prisk family, but I certainly don't like it. So, so what's the difference between these two groups of people that this passage is about to tell us? Then Jesus, don't miss this, big detail, answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Notice that he doesn't say, go ahead, Lord. He doesn't say, go ahead, Savior. Go, go ahead, teacher. See, Jesus is looking at Simon going, hey, Simon, buckle up. Be, be, because stuff is about to get very real. You are normally the teacher, but, but this woman, this prostitute, is, is about to take you to school. Then Jesus told him this story. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, which would have been roughly the equivalent of, of two years wages, and 50 pieces to the other, roughly two months wages, but, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose, and this isn't a rhetorical question, he's asking for a response from Simon. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? And Simon answered the way that I think we probably would have all replied. He says, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. So, so it wasn't a trick question, right? The, the answer is obvious. The one who had more money forgiven is going to be more grateful uh, and excited about that, uh, love him more than the individual who was forgiven less. But, but pay attention to what happens next. And it's so easy to miss details like this if we're just ripping through these stories. Then at this point, previously, he's been talking to Simon. At this point, we're told, then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon, 
just very, very deliberate and intentional here. He's, he's now looking at the woman, but yet he's still going to be talking to, to Simon. So, so, so you picture in this dynamic here, he, he's now staring right at this woman at his feet and, and he's talking to Simon, okay? So track with me here. He turned to the woman, said to Simon, look, he says, look at this woman kneeling here. The, the implication being, Simon, you don't really see this woman. You see a category. You see a label. You see body parts. But, but you certainly don't see a person created in the image of God. You don't see a woman who is deeply loved by God, who, oh, by the way, Simon, I, I will soon die for. So still looking at this woman, but talking to Simon, Jesus continues. He says, when I entered your home, you you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, which, oh, by the way, was very customary at that point. They're all wearing open-toed shoes. It was just standard practice that if you walked into anyone's home who had really any means whatsoever, there was an opportunity to wash your feet off. But, But she, he says, has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Again, so scandalous. He says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. Again, could not have been more customary. You come up to me in church on a Sunday morning and try to greet me with a kiss. I'm, I'm going to react and push you away. But back at that point in history, completely normal. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. He says, you neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head. As much of a religious practice as it was to cover the scent. Because back at this point in history, they're running around in like these rather thick robes, like sweating, not having access to water all the time. So very practically speaking, they just didn't smell very good. So putting oil on an individual's head, it's like the modern, like the the first century uh, version of like spraying a little bit of Axe body spray on yourself. But he says, she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. And again, I want you to picture this. He's still looking at this woman, but talking to Simon. He says, I I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Then Jesus, still looking at the woman, says, your sins are forgiven. Now, Now cue at this point the religious men absolutely losing their minds. It says, the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? Now, for like the four or five of you that, that, that don't know why this might have caused such an uproar, they are, and I will add, rightly thinking, wait a minute, the only person who can forgive a sin is the individual who the sin was committed against. In in, in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, unified on this idea, Scripture clearly teaches us that all sins are ultimately committed against God himself. So so if a sin is, is against God first and foremost, then the only person who can forgive sin is God. So it's like, wait a minute, they're thinking to themselves, who does this guy think he is? Can you see this? They they are so close. God is literally sitting at their dinner table. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith alone in Christ alone. 
Your faith, your trust, your belief has saved you. That's it. Now, now here's why this was so controversial. This was a, a culture steeped in religion. And, and religion says God's acceptance of you is based upon your obedience to him. Follow the rules and you'll be good with God. Don't follow the rules and you will not be good with God. It's actually a very, very simple algorithm. The more rules you follow, the more God will love you. Moral people are in, immoral people are out. People like Simon and the Pharisees, the people who, oh, by the way, were harder at following the religious rules than anyone else, they were obviously in and someone like this prostitute is obviously out. And can I actually right now just kind of point out the obvious? This, this sort of makes sense, right? This line of logic lines up perfectly in our heads because this is the dynamic at play in virtually every earthly relationship. For instance, if your spouse is, is faithful to you, serves you, plays by the marriage rules, then you and your spouse will be good. But, but your spouse cheats on you, breaks the marriage covenant, then you guys will most certainly not be good. You will be headed for divorce. Your employer treats you with respect, pays you on time, appropriately honors you, then you will probably stick around and do your job well. However, if your employer is harsh, docks your pay unnecessarily, treats you like a robot and not like a person, you're probably not going to be as motivated to work hard and will likely look for other employment opportunities. But Jesus comes along and he flips this paradigm upside down. He, he throws the entire religious system on its head. Here's what Jesus teaches, and we actually touched on this passage last week. God saved you by his grace, there's our key word for today, by his grace when you believed. Again, faith alone in Christ alone. And he reminds us, you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. You want to know very simply what grace is? It is unmerited favor. It's exactly what is being described here. And I'm telling you all watching right now, a seminal moment in each of our faith journeys comes about when we realize that there is nothing that we can do to get God to love us more. And there is nothing you can do to get God to love you less. God loves you because that is who he is. Nothing you have done or will ever do compelled God to move your direction. He would send his one and only son because he loves you that much. And so Jesus comes along and rather than God's acceptance of us being based upon our obedience to him, Jesus declares and he doubles down on it in a way that nobody would have ever predicted when he would freely offer his own life. Jesus declares God's acceptance of you is based upon your belief in me, based upon God, your belief in his son. Not what you do, not what you have done, not what you will do, but rather belief, faith, trust. Faith alone in Christ alone. The, the, the only way to God is to stop trusting in your own works, to stop trusting in what you have done, for, for, for you to release your sense of self-righteousness. All self-righteousness is, it's a very simple definition, it's the belief that you can be good or you can be righteous on your own. Re release your sense of self-righteousness and cast your hope on the only one who is ever righteous, Jesus himself. Your acceptance is based on grace, not works. That, that, that is, oh, by the way, the most important thing that you will ever hear me utter from this stage. So I'm gonna say it again. Your acceptance is based on grace, not works. 
And it's why, oh, by the way, the prostitute and the tax collector get into heaven before the Pharisee because they realize they're sinners in need of grace. But the religious people think they're so good that they don't need grace. And in their self-righteousness, they don't think they need Jesus. In an incredible twist, Jesus declared that those who think they deserve to be in are actually out, and everyone who knows they deserve to be out are actually in. Think about it this way. Every person in hell thinks they deserve heaven, and every person in heaven knows they deserved hell. Can I point out one more thing from this story? It is definitely worth noting that this woman is in tears. She's She's broken because she despises her life of sin. And she desperately wants a new one. And Jesus, don't miss this. He clearly calls her a sinner. He does not condone her behavior. See, in our pick and choose, Jesus of the 21st century, in our effort to make Jesus more palatable to society at large, we love to highlight the Jesus of grace. But, but ignore the Jesus who calls out sin for exactly what it is. This woman, you'll recall, broke this alabaster jar at the feet of Jesus. And she did that because it was her saying, I will never need this again. Because I'm about to live a new life with, with this guy, with this guy at the center. Jesus saves us as we are, but, but he doesn't leave us where we are. He, he's not merely our savior who saves us from the penalty of sin. He's our Lord who frees us from the power of sin. See, church, when Jesus invades your life, you want to. It is something that you desire to start aligning your life to his way because you're so overcome with gratitude for what he has done for you. So it's less obligation, more gratitude. Less obligation, more gratitude. In fact, in John chapter 14, this is Jesus saying this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's really, really easy in that passage to misinterpret the tone, to like read into it a threat. Like, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. It's not a threat. It's an invitation from Jesus himself. He's like, hey, if, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. For, for those of you who are new to this whole Christianity thing and you've heard about how restrictive Christianity is, what a buzzkill Jesus is, that there are all these rules, can I just kind of level set things really quick for you right now? Fall in love with Jesus and everything else will fall into place. That's the problem with so many churches, so, so many people who do what I do for a living, that they focus on the rules to the neglect of Jesus. Focus on Jesus and, and the rules aren't going to feel like rules. They'll feel more appropriately like invitations into the better life that, that God has planned for you. They become these invitations in, into freedom. Let me close things out today by uh, illustrating it this way. This is a chart that has been like in Christian circles for like ages. Um, and uh, it'll maybe come across a little bit cheesy to some of you, but I, I think it'll resonate and helps to kind of drive uh, to drive this home. All right, so so what this chart is supposed to represent is uh, is kind of your life, 
that, that, that first little part that you see right there, uh, that, that is kind of right, your life before Christ. And then at a certain point, uh, hopefully for, for every person, right, they, they step into a saving relationship with Jesus, where Jesus, through his grace, saves you through his redemptive work on the cross. That, that right there, that moment that says salvation, uh, that is when you place your trust in Jesus. Now, after placing your trust in Jesus and beginning to actually follow him, being conformed more and more into his image, two things begin to play, take place. On one hand, as you can see on the top part there, you become increasingly aware of God's holiness. That that just keeps going up and up and up and up. And and it's kind of like what we talked about last week. Rather than asking the question of like, how could a loving God supposedly send people to hell? You become frankly more consumed with the question like, how could could a holy God allow someone like me into heaven? So so there's an increased awareness of God's holiness. Simultaneously at the same time, uh, there's this other trajectory where there is an increased awareness of my sinfulness. So those two things are happening simultaneously. Increased awareness of God's holiness, increased awareness of my sinfulness. In fact, I actually think this is really illustrated quite well. I'm going to nerd out kind of a little bit here on Bible for just a second. Track with me if you think this stuff is really boring. Hopefully you'll bring it back in here in a couple minutes. Uh, If you pay attention to how the Apostle Paul, who wrote like better than half of the New Testament, uh, you can literally track how he speaks of himself throughout his letters and the trajectory that this is heading. Initially, in one of his first letters, he says, Paul an apostle. Then in another letter, just a couple letters later, he says, Paul, the least of all the apostles. Then he eventually gets to this place where he says, Paul, the, the least of all the saints. He's like, of all the, the gospel writers, of all the people who have like wrote this stuff down, I'm the least of all those individuals. Then by the end, on his very last letter, he literally writes, Christ died for sinners amongst who I am the worst. And it's like, you could read this and be like, okay, like Paul, like what is going on? Are you deconstructing your faith? No, no, no. This is what's happening right here. He's having this increased awareness of God's holiness. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that God would take an interest in me. I can't believe that he loves me. Because again, also there's this increased awareness of his own sinfulness. And as all of this is taking place, as you have this increased awareness of God's holiness, increased awareness of your sinfulness, the cross, as you can see there in the middle, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Like, like, like the moment that, that yes, you, you encounter Jesus, that you place your trust in Jesus, salvation, that's a big moment, but, but, but your gratitude and your thankfulness for what Jesus did on the cross, that too just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The, the more uh, mature you become in your faith, the more conformed you become into Christ's image. And out of that, what's really, really special that you can, again, see there on the side, what happens is, is you begin to overflow with love so overcome with gratitude for what Jesus has done for you, you want to express that love for others as well as God himself. In fact, more and more increasingly, it's not all about what's in it for me and myself. That stuff, it slowly begins to dissipate and you become obsessed with what is best for other people. How can I leverage my life for the people around me? How can I live my life more for Christ? How can I express my love for God as well as the people around me? Can, can I just be uh, really, really honest right now? This is what is, is so perplexing to me. When, when, when people who claim to have experienced the saving grace of Jesus stand in complete apathy during the worship portion of our services. I wasn't planning on sharing this and then prayed and was like, I think God that you want me to share this. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly. Um, it was last year at, at Christmas, um, after one of our Christmas services, 
um, I found myself in my office and I was literally like bawling on the floor of my office, literally weeping is the more appropriate term, uh, while I was playing with my son Oakley. Oakley was really just the excuse, so I had a chance to escape. I had locked my door because I didn't want anybody to come in. And, and I was literally just like like weeping in my office after that service, knowing that we still had uh, another service that night. And uh, total transparency, they, they were not tears of joy. Um, I honestly was a wreck over the complete apathy that I had never experienced in that way to, to that extent before and what had just happened in, in one of our services in worship. From my vantage point, that the followers of Jesus in the room became obsessed in an instant with what is my dad, what is my mom, what is my spouse, what is my friend, what is my sibling, what is this person next to me going to think if, if they see me suddenly raising my hands and crying out and thanking Jesus, as opposed to, hey, like maybe I can validate all the words that are just spoken through my actions right now. And uh, it wrecked me. I, I had to really beg God for some strength to get out there and, and, and preach another service. I, I don't think we probably realize that to the extent um, that I'm communicating right now. How all of us, every single Sunday, have an opportunity to validate the words that are preached from the stage through our response to Jesus. And I think we underestimate for the lost person in the room who's watching and hearing about Jesus, what kind of message that sends when the guy up on the stage and y'all, I, you have my word, I'll bring it every week. <laughs> I'll bring the energy. I prepare just as hard on a Thanksgiving weekend as I do on any other week. And I'm confident that God gave me words uh, for today just as much as he did any other week in this series, just as much as he does for Christmas, just as much for Easter. I, I get up here and truly, I, I try to pour my heart out with what the Holy Spirit has, has laid on me to speak to all of you. But all of that can get undone in an instant if his people just stand there again in complete apathy. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said to Simon, while he was again looking at the woman, talking to Simon, I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Church, here's what I think happened here, and take this for what it's worth. I have no historical documents to point to this. I, I think this woman was standing outside of this house and watching, she watched from the moment that Jesus entered into this home. She saw that nobody anointed his head with oil. She saw that nobody washed his feet. She saw that nobody greeted him with a holy kiss. She watched all of this in absolute disbelief because this was the only person who had ever treated her like a person, like an image-bearing daughter of the Most High God and not like a piece of meat. And she is watching this going, why aren't they worshiping Jesus? And she made the decision, I don't care what these people are going to think of me. I am going to go and sit at his feet and worship him. All the Christians who are watching right now, can I just ask you a really plain question? When is the last time that you just wept at the feet of Jesus? Listen, I get it. I know that some of you, you're just not a very emotional person. Okay, Th those that, that know me well, know that I am one of the most logical, least emotional people on the planet. 
every personality profile I have ever taken would indicate all logic, no emotion. But I cannot reflect on what Jesus has done for me without having my eyes sweat a little bit. You will routinely find me driving up and down US 23 on my way to work, on my way home from work, on my way to church, on my way home from church, bawling my eyes out in my car by myself as I am just screaming out praises to my Lord and Savior. Let me put this really, really plain. I recognize I'm ruffling some feathers right now. I'm putting some people on the spot. And honestly, that is my intention. I think we need this sometimes. Our worship ought to be as extravagant as his sacrifice. And again, I know what some of you are thinking right now. We all worship differently. I'm worshiping him, Shay. You don't understand. I'm worshiping him in my heart. And listen, I want to clear the deck on this. There are absolutely times when that is appropriate, to be still and know that he is God. But there are also times where we are called, even commanded, to express with our bodies what we feel in our heart. In church, I've made this point many times before. In every other relationship you have, you express with your body what you feel in your heart. I will go home from church today. I will walk in the door and more than likely, because it happens just about every day, my little son Oakley will hear the door open up and he will stop whatever he's doing. Stop eating, get off the floor of the living room, get off the couch and he sprints over to me and just wraps me up in this hug. And you better believe I hug him back. I express with my body what I feel in my heart. When I talk to a person who's been coming back for a couple of weeks and they've taken that challenge to come for three weeks in a row and I recognize like, okay, I remember meeting that person about a month ago, they're still here and they're sharing about the amazing things that God has been speaking over their life, the way that they're encountering God in new ways that they've never experienced before. You better believe, even though I don't know that person particularly well, I wrap them up in a hug. I'm grinning from ear to ear. I express with my body what I feel in my heart. I am so glad that that individual is stepping into a relationship with Jesus. Dudes, come on, because let's be honest, the, the dudes that are watching right now, we, we are the ones with, that struggle with this the most. Think about it this way. If, if your wife told you, hey, she sat you down, she's like, I just want to let you know that um, I'm no longer going to express with my body what I feel in my heart because I've just decided I'm more, more private, I'm more introverted, I, I'm more of a non-expressive kind of person. So moving forward, we will not be expressing with our bodies what, what I feel in, in my heart. Can you even imagine the mutiny on behalf of the men in this church? Can you imagine the line to my office door telling me, like, hey, we really got to do a series on like relationships and marriage. Like, you, you got to talk about this. Followers of Jesus who, who are watching right now, we are called like this woman to express with our bodies what we feel in our hearts. I'll end with this. One of the things that has been so incredibly encouraging over the course of this last year, 18 months, is how young people, 16, 17, 18-year-olds, have in so many ways been leading the charge with their worship of Jesus. Not not just on Sunday mornings, but uh, with their giving, for instance. There, there's hardly a week that goes by where I don't get a notification of a 15, a 16, a 17-year-old that has began to actually tithe from their relatively low-paying high school job. Uh, of a young person that I look at who's serving and I'm like, does this 
these kids serve every single week. And, and I hear these stories of these young people that are like, why wouldn't I serve every week? Why wouldn't I want to be involved in the local church that just about every single week, like this large swath of teenagers who go to one service and then they serve at the other just about every week. That, that if you haven't picked up on, so many young people on Sunday mornings, when you look to the front of the room, it's the young people, the teenagers that are pouring their hearts out in worship to Jesus. And here's my working theory. They haven't had a lifetime of religious habits to shape them, and instead they're being shaped by the grace that they read about in the scriptures. And so serving and giving and worshiping is the only appropriate response. My prayer for this church is that God would plant his grace so deeply in your heart that it would explode in your life. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, man, you didn't leave us in the mess that we had created for ourselves. I thank you, God, that your grace is enough. Thank you for sending your one and your only son. You didn't have to. You could have just as easily walked away from the earth. You could have just as easily written us off, but you chose to chart a path that, that we might be able to step into relationship with you again. So Jesus, we just say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for wanting anything to do with us. Thank you for using us, despite our flaws, despite our shortcomings. Thank you for being the God who is love. In your name we play, amen.